Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Chief Medical Affairs Officer at Ohio University. He also is the Chair of the Ohio Council of Medical School Deans. Dr. Johnson gives us an update on the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Johnson, you and I have talked uh, several times before about the COVID uh, pandemic, but we seem to be increasing the number of cases, if not plateauing. Dr. Fauci says we've got 40,000 new cases. We're averaging a day. 33 states have increased their numbers recently, as well as Puerto Rico. Uh, Why aren't we making progress? Yeah, Tom, you know, just when you think we're out of the woods where we see cases decreasing, then you see this either explosion of cases or just, you know, cases kind of uh, creeping up. And I I think it's just a reflection of the disease itself and how dang infectious this disease is. How, How come, if you look at the map of the United States, we see these hot spots. It was Arizona and Florida. Now they seem to be doing okay. And now we've got the midsection of the country all in red, reflecting hot spots. Uh, some areas have plateaued. Talk about how this jumps around and and how does that happen? You mean within each state or the, the, the well, sh- just on the map of the United States, we have some states that are hot and then they go cold or they plateau and then they come back and they're hot. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to follow any pattern. It seems to hopscotch across the country. Can, can you explain that? No, I don't think I can, but I do think I do have theory that I, I think that on um, what you'll see a spike in disease and you'll see states and counties and cities double down on the efforts to try to quell disease, getting it under control, and then relaxing again. And th- this is a disease, unfortunately, where you have to relax very, very cautiously on um, because you know relaxing too much, and then you tend to see a a, a respike on um, in disease. It, I, it may not be uh, germane to uh, uh, anything, but let me ask you. We've seen professional uh, groups like the NBA uh, do their their sort of closeted season and all in a bubble. We have seen the NFL 
do that. We obviously can't live that way, but does that seem to be more effective? For certain activities like athletics, I absolutely think that that's um, a way to try to, to manage. And then I think that um, instituting with rigor and caution on, in other activities, protective measures will allow us to do some things that are recognizably normal, but not really on uh, for the time being. So, um, what do you mean by that? So, so let's let's take education on as an example, and as either higher ed or you know the K through twelve on um, tries to tries to open. Um, I think people long for on um, what we've had in the past, the sense of normalcy and, you know, every day I go to school at eight and I'm out at three or um, or whatever that is. And you have to have a, just a high level of planning, preparedness, caution, et cetera. And you can do some of those activities such as maybe schools and higher ed, you're doing something more on a hybrid model, um, but in a really modified manner we're in a maybe in a lab you would have had 40 people you have 20 or 15 people and you have everything worked out from the way they walk in how they get into the room where they stand where they leave on on maps of where people are in the room and so it it, it takes a real high degree of control planning on uh, preparation and and response on to be able to do some of those some of those kind of activities with something as new and novel as this virus, um, how important is data and data study and scientific research in real time? Oh, it's it's critical. And, and not only the data, but the sharing of it and the interpretation of it. And there's, there's some of this that reminds me a little bit of what I saw during the AIDS epidemic where... Um, we would gather people together for a national meeting and share information and practice would change literally the next week. And I, I think that's we're in a similar space where we need access to good uh, information on people analyzing and giving their, you know, unfortunately to start off with expert opinion about how to um, interpret the data and what, what to do. Uh, and the reason I say unfortunate is that we don't have the time on we're not going to be doing, you know, randomized controlled trials. We're not going to be doing these case cohort on studies over some over some long on um, period. So th there's the need for having data uh, in real time, analyzing it, and and changing practice almost immediately based off of the observations. The reliance on data by the experts is one thing. The reliance on data by the average person, the general population, is another. And we live in such a politicized world and a divided country that it's made sort of scientific knowns, scientific you know, certainties, uncertain. Yeah, you know, Tom, one of the, one of the pieces of that, I think, is that it... Um, I think we also have the, the chance to lose our perspective. So I'll take the example of in Ohio. There was a period of time in Ohio where we were averaging 350 new cases per day. Then we went through a period of time where we had um, you know, 1,500 to 1,700 new cases every single day. 
when you get down to a thousand, thousand's a lot better than fifteen hundred, but it's a lot worse than the three fifty. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you can feel like, hey, we're doing better, on um, but uh, in re in reality, we still have you know a lot of a lot of disease uh, around. So, I I think it's actually it's easy in the middle of all of it to lose perspective. And especially for people who are not scientifically based, uh, let's face it, we don't live our daily lives based on science. Uh, we do our daily lives based on routine or what feels good or or what we think is good for our family. And, and here we're, we're really out of our league in, in trying to, to battle this virus without science. Yeah, and I think people are overwhelmed with data in some ways and, and maybe not like good information about how to, yeah. how to interpret the, uh, the data and, and what it means and, you know, really kind of conflicting, um, sometimes conflicting interpretations put out there. I know you you don't like being critical of of anyone, but um, let me be critical uh, of the CDC. Uh, it seems like about every other week we get some edict from the CDC, and then it's turned around and it's taken down, or it's changed, or oh, we didn't mean that, and then a couple of weeks later we get an amended version. Um, for somebody who tries to follow this on, on a daily basis, it, it's immensely confusing. Yes, and there's areas where it, it sometimes you can get contradictions on as as well. Or in, and for the general public, it can be confusing. And I think the CDC is doing the best it can, it can in trying to put that out. You know, there's areas where there's recommendations for those that are involved in healthcare and not involved in healthcare. On involved in higher ed and what you should do uh, in those uh, in those settings, and that's that's a little bit of the razor's edge going back to what we said before, which is putting information out as close to available as possible. On but how do you how do you do that to make sure that it's 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 reliable? Um, and so, um, the good and the bad of that is getting information out as quickly as 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 possible. But on um, I've experienced it myself that on. Um, circumstances changing so so quickly changes your your perspective on what the what the next best best action is so let me let me ask you give an example uh, the CDC said uh, you had to be quarantined for 14 days then they changed it and said uh, 10 is okay uh, then then they said okay um, you you can uh, help yourself by wearing a mask and being socially distant. Then they come out and say, well, but droplets still hang in the air. They just came out with that a couple of days ago. Droplets still hang in the air. So maybe social distancing isn't all that much safer. Uh, and to the average person, this drives you crazy. Yeah, I, I can completely understand that. And I, I think some of that comes from us trying to understand what's going on with this disease better. And I'll I'll give you a couple of examples built off of what you just said. And I'm still not uh, aware of, although it may be out there, and, on, of documented cases being transmitted from surfaces. Um, it makes complete sense that that could happen. Um, in the lab, we can put on, um, you know, some some droplets that have on um, 
COVID on a surface and, and find it sometime on after that. We clearly know that on people close together without masks on transmits on uh, the disease. And we know that certain activities like singing uh, or yelling uh, can really uh, create that, you know, really large corona cloud, have, have your air droplets, you know, the, the droplets travel on further. And, you know, now CDC is on coming out on, you know, saying that uh, in addition to the big droplets that the aerosol, aerosolization or, you know, smaller droplets that we may see this on uh, hanging around and traveling on um, a little bit, a little bit further. And I, you know, I think there was evidence towards that on um, before when we were seeing on um, this, these kind of super spreader or superseding on um, kind of events that most of which occurred inside um, with air conditioning, with people in close proximity and, you know, just having that on, um, you know, air circulating, recirculating in the same, in the same space. Well, we've talked about the CDC. Now I want to talk about the FDA. Um, we have a battle going on between the FDA and the White House, at least it's my characterization that it's a battle, over the protocols for releasing a vaccine and when it's going to be released and when it's effective and safe to be re released. The FDA came out with guidelines, the White House uh, just yesterday, rejected those guidelines. It, it, to the average person, this seems like nobody knows what the hell they're doing. Yeah, I, you know, so I, I'm very supportive of um, ways in which we can accelerate discovery and process. Um, and I think there are a number of people now that have come forward saying that, you know, we will not support and or bring something forward without the rigor that we need to have to have it be safe. So there is this kind of dynamic battle going on around getting something out really fast and versus on, you know, the, the safety protocols that we have to have in place in the process to to assure that this is going to this is going to happen. I think a positive side effect may be. I would hope carrying forward innovation and process that allows these things to come forward faster. Um, the typical vaccine takes 10 to 15 years to bring to market, fastest ever four years. We're talking in the order of months on trying to get uh, a vaccine to the masses, which is, you know, I, I think the, um, you know, the White House called it Operation Warp Speed, and it, it really, it really would be. But I do think that with as much time, energy, effort, and money that's being pushed in this direction in a unified way across the world, that we will likely see a vaccine much faster and sooner than we've you know, ever seen uh, historically. I, some of the processes like doing two phases overlapping with each other instead of sequential, especially in the early stages, may make a lot of sense as a way to bring on uh, vaccine to market uh, more quickly. On um, in the later stages, when we're in on uh, human trials on uh, and really looking at on uh, on safety, we're really looking for those on uh, unintended uh, consequences and side effects uh, that you only really get a better understanding of when you've tested enough people 
uh, and certainly over a certain period of time. And that, I, th- I think that's going to be the real, the real challenge there. One of the things that the FDA has countered uh, the, the politics of this with is saying that they are going to release, and I'm probably using the wrong term, so forgive me, they're going to release raw data or they're going to release data in real time on the test so that experts around the world can evaluate that. That's something new, correct? Yes. And, you know, there's, for a long time, there's, uh, folks have advocated for having that kind of transparency and information and maybe even in, in process uh, as a way to really try to accelerate on research to practice. And I, I can give you a, a slightly different uh, example, but Folks who have had a heart attack, we've known for a long time that if they had a certain medication called a beta blocker, that it's it's helpful. It, it, it took over 10 years from knowing that in the literature to practice. Um, and so wow. if, we had, if we had a different um, a different way to both look at the data um, and then distribute the information, then the adoption of, um, of practice on um, uh, certainly, could be could be much could be much faster. The other thing I I, I want to get a realistic check on here is availability. Once a vaccine is approved uh, through whatever mechanism, uh, I think the average person thinks that they're going to go to their local CVS or, or Rite Aid or or whatever, Walgreens, and and get a shot. Um, that's not going to happen. Right. So that's so then you need mass production and then, and then mass distribution. I, I, I think the, the good thing here is that on, on, I'm sure CDC and in particular on health departments across the U.S. are already starting that planning process of what would it look like and how would we how would we distribute it knowing that we'll have a vaccine at some point on um, what what are the things that we need to have in place to to be able to and um, then get it to the on uh, to the people does it make sense that what i've heard that it will be given to health workers first first health workers and first responders first then to people who are in the categories of being the most susceptible, older people, people with uh, underlying uh, conditions, and then work its way down? Yeah, and that, that kind of mirrors some of what we do on already on with, you know, if you think about, about flu, on, you know, this, most healthcare organizations don't allow you to work unless you've had your flu, your flu vaccine. And uh, we certainly try to um, get as many elders unvaccinated as, as possible. So I think taking that prioritized approach uh, makes, you know, it just makes complete sense. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations 
an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I want to talk a little bit about the president and and his COVID diagnosis, and I want to talk about it in, in several ways that uh, are not necessarily uh, political. Uh, f- first of all, uh, we've heard from Dr. Conley and others about the various medications and regimens that he's been given. How do they differ from what's given to the average patient, if at all? Yeah, so I, I think that's part of what people have been trying to piece together is on uh, President Trump's, on his condition when it was in the hospital, now that he's back in the White House, and what he was given. And his his treatment regimen was really one that was um, most typically given to folks that have severe disease that have been on hospitalized. So on uh, steroids and antiviral medications on, you know, being used at the same, uh, at the same time to try to, um, you know, get the um, virus and its sequela on under, you know, under control. On um, so on uh, the, uh, the, pr- the president uh, compared to the average American had a very, very aggressive treatment regimen and and that's that's not used uh, typically uh, to the average Joe or Sally who goes to the hospital and and ha- is having problems. Yeah, well, particularly on so with with the president here now being in his residence, which again is you know, he has twenty four hour on medical coverage, which is not the usual. Not typical, <laughs> of course. On uh, uh, course on as uh, as well and. At least what was reported initially of mild symptoms of cough and fever, um, uh, et cetera, on um, you know the uh, typically are the instructions would be looking out for further on symptoms of on um, uh, being shortness of breath or s- significant shortness of breath on um, uh, severe fatigue, et cetera, et cetera, on um, with 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 that. So on. Um, you know, really aggressive treatment over a relatively short period of time, you know, three days, on uh, and then home. Can you sort of walk us through uh, some critical points? We heard Dr. Connolly say, obviously, the, they jumped in with some aggressive treatment within the first 72 hours. But he also um, made a statement in one of his press conferences that there is a critical point in a person's disease progression at the 7 to 10-day mark. What does that mean? Yeah, so if we start from... The on average time when someone gets exposed, if they're going to be infected, is it takes usually about five days on for someone to start experiencing on the first the first symptoms on that they that they have there, and then many people with mild illness on will experience the course of that illness over about a ten day 
on seven to 10 day on period of time. So in that, from that onset of, on, of illness on really what we're looking at with people with really mild disease is a, is a resolution within that two week period of time. People who have that shift into the more severe on form of the, the illness on you're looking at a much more prolonged on course and in those folks on you know it could be six to eight weeks before they're at they're at full full recovery the president last night made a statement uh, and said uh, maybe i'm immune maybe i'm not uh, that brought up the whole idea of infectiousness and when is a person infectious Obviously, he's back at the White House within four or five days of the onset uh, of the disease. Talk about sort of the the arc of infectiousness. Yeah, you know, and he, here here's one where we're still trying to understand this a little bit better because we're we're looking at people who have the you know who we can prove has the vi- have the virus. So there's pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic symptomatic and the pre-symptomatic idea is that maybe we find you have the virus and it's before your symptoms develop and then lo and behold we tell you to isolate and you develop the symptoms of course the people who first manifest with the illness and then some that maybe are asymptomatic and never get on never get the illness and there's actually something interesting that i've been reading lately we know that folks will have you can have virus on for on you can still be positive up to three months after you've had your initial uh, illness. And one of the things that's been postulated is are some of the, these folks that we're calling an uh, asymptomatic on uh, are some of them actually folks that had such mild illness, they didn't even notice it. And we're catching them in that three month on uh, window of time, which I think is a very interesting uh, thing to, uh, to think through. And uh, so person gets exposed, Virus, you know, kind of hijacks your genetic code and starts uh, reproducing itself in the nose and on uh, upper respiratory uh, tract. Um, it, in some ways, it basically makes turns your cells into a virus-producing factory, producing more virus and then shedding it in your air droplets going out uh, to be able to uh, infect on others. Um, there's a certain when we call it, you know, viral load, there's a certain amount of virus that you have to have to then have enough of it being spread uh, to be uh, infectious. And then there's some period of time after you get over the infection that you, you we can still find virus, but you're not, you're not quote unquote, we call it shedding, you're not shedding enough virus for it to really truly be infectious. So your body's immune system is is weakening, is making it weak <laughs> so that you we still can diagnose it, but it's not it's not traveling to other people. So, so let me ask: Would the period that the president would be infectious be different than the first lady? Be different than uh, Kellyanne Conway? You know, different than all of these other Senator Lee, all of these other people who have come down. It'll be the same, and you know, our gui- the guidelines right now are to once you have the disease to isolate for 10 days and that you need to be at least 24 hours without fever or symptoms on in that 10 day window on to then be released from isolation. Meaning, you know, if you were still 10 days out and you were having cough and fever on et cetera, 
we would make the assumption that that you may still be uh, infectious at that point because you haven't really gotten over the on um, the virus. Now, this may be a stupid question, but <laughs> let me ask it. So, if somebody is serving somebody who's infectious, uh, you know, a housekeeper, a, a cook, uh, you know, a valet, what, whatever. Are they more apt to get the virus from a person who has been diagnosed as being infectious or someone who's pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic? I, you know, I, Tom, I don't know if I have a clear answer to that. My, my judgment would be, or my, you know, relatively educated. <laughs> Very much educated. Yeah, someone, someone who's actively symptomatic on um, th those folks are that are, are near them inside of six feet on um, close contact, uh, any physical contact are at high risk for, um, for, for getting the, for getting the disease. And, you know, one of the things I've been looking at is on, um, you know, you know, have people people can take extra precautions on inside of that space like wearing an n95 mask on as an example on to try to help those are ones that physicians wear and and, and healthcare workers wear etc on in that in that case and on you know the on very very frequent washing of hands and and, and things like that or extra you know extra precautions that people on might 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 have and I mean, in the healthcare setting, certainly there, you'll see people now, you know, particularly in the ER and other settings, almost look like they have a spacesuit on, on to this point where the, you know, they have a full head garb on, wear on a visor and on, you know, no, no real um, potential for contact with the eyes or nose or, on, or, 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 or anything. We know that all of a sudden we have a cluster uh, in the White House, but we have clusters all over the country, whether it's a wedding or, or a, a social gathering or, or whatever. You and I have talked briefly in the past about contact tracing. Um, if you're dealing with a politician or you're dealing with a public servant or somebody who is uh, in contact with the public all the time. Contract, contact tracing seems to me to be a nightmare. It is, it's a challenge without, without a doubt. Uh, and, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Try to think over the last two days or 14 days on you know how many people you might have been. Now it maybe is a little bit. It'd be easier. it'd be easier now, but, <laughs> but in the in the old days it'd be hundreds. It'd be it'd be really it'd be really difficult to uh, to think about that. And someone, you know, on the campaign trail or on or whatever, and the people that they're uh, coming into contact with, I I do think that would be uh, you know kind of a big a big challenge. Um, but in, in organizations where you have people with roles that are assigned to doing, you know, certain on um, tasks on, um, you know, that gets a little bit, a little bit easier. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that we've tried to do is to, from an operations perspective, minimize the risk on um, to the point, uh, to the greatest extent possible. And as we, 
on as Ohio University has been putting plans together, the on the litmus test that I use is on if I had a positive case and I'm talking to county public health and they're telling me that others within our plan have to isolate, have to quarantine in addition to the person has to isolate, then our plan's not right. Um, so I try to use that as the, as okay. the test of, of things. And I'll give you a really specific example. We do some of our lab activities where no one instructor is inside of a six foot space for any more than 15 minutes cumulatively over whatever that period of time uh, is. And in some cases we've, uh, and, and we've mapped it out on putting students into pods, socially, physically distance. And then uh, if instructors have to come close on, uh, you know, it's in the order of, on, you know, like seconds at a time that doesn't, that, you know, that doesn't add up. So we, we've tried to do it in a way that if your plan would have someone have to quarantine, then maybe your plan isn't adequate. <laughs> okay. No, it makes sense. So, so one last area, and that is uh, the president today uh, said that he was going to uh, do a debate uh, next week, uh, it may be uh, outside the ten-day period. We don't know how his infection is going to manifest over the next week. Um, what would make that safe, or what would make that unsafe to appear at a debate? Yeah. So I, I think if I th I read what the vice presidential debate is planning on doing right now, where there's some additional physical barriers that they're some plexiglass, I believe that they're that they're putting up on. And again, go going back to the you know no symptoms on uh, ten days, twenty four hours without a fever, on et cetera. Certainly, that person should be on less of a. Uh, of an issue um, with that, but then those the, those extra precautions of physical barriers, greater distance, um, et cetera, are things that would I'm sure would have to come into um, consideration. Uh, one last question, and that is, um, we don't see any into this, and uh, as the average person out here, it, it's getting uh, more and more difficult. Uh, to to function at a hundred percent with without having some ramifications of of what we're going through, um, do you see an end? Well, I do. Th I do think one of the game changers will be a vaccine, and I, I, I do think we'll see a vaccine in twenty twenty one on and on how widely distributed that is and effective that is will certainly on have some on uh, some impact. I think the place that people often draw the analog to is the, of course, the, the flu pandemic of 1918, which was really a three-year cycle on the, that we saw on then. And I, I don't think anybody right now is, is predicting the, you know, kind of petering out of this on disease in the, in the near, near future here. So I do think that the um, vaccine will be a, Will, will, will be a game changer on uh, and um, of course the other the other piece is the virus itself and will it will it mutate in one one direction or another and including in a in a way where it um, 
becomes less of a less of an issue. And I think the you know so for flu we have various different strains of flu um, every year, and uh, that's something that we've had to contend with. We've had coronavirus on forever as well, a less you know infectious and less on deadly on version on, of that. Um, but I I would say that you know, the, the better part of valor is for us to um, prepare um, for this to be something that we that we have with us, you know, for the next year or two. And we are not a patient people. I was just, as you were talking, thinking back to 1918, uh, things were slower, uh, things moved at a slower pace, and certainly people were not as mobile as they are here in 2020. 2020, we have an attention span of a nanosecond. Uh, we have patients uh, about the size of my little finger, and and uh, we have to be on the go all the time. Uh, those things seem to be in conflict with what might be prudent. Yeah, and Tom, think about the what almost feels like the superhuman efforts that we're making around on certain things to try to ha have it feel as normal as it as it could be, and when I say when I mean superhuman, I, I maybe ex being a little bit too um, broad with that. But on um, professional athletics, on um, college athletics, on um, et cetera, the amount the amount of on um, testing and protocols and tracing and everything they have to do there just to have those operate on um, it, it it's it's almost mind boggling on uh, when you think about all the things that we have to do to, to try to have a semblance of, of um, things that we do under more quote unquote normal <laughs> circumstances. Well, uh, you know, I, I, my wife and I watched hard knocks on HBO, which, you know, was in, in training camps of, of the NFL and just watching, I'm sure we only saw a fraction of, of the testing and all of the things that they did and the expense of all of that's got to be astronomical that the average person just can't handle. Yeah, it's it's we're we're talking on the you know for any one sport on at least on the professional level tens of thousands of tests on um, that have been have been done on a very frequent basis to try to uh, to try to operate. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be we shouldn't be doing that, but it's it's a huge effort on uh, to on um, to to do that and I do believe that we should try to um, think through how can we do the things that are um, life-giving um, in a variety of ways um, as, mu as much as possible, whether it's personally, professionally, um, et cetera, and some of the things that um, g give us some, some sense of, of normal there. Well, Dr. Johnson, as always, thank you for giving us your professional opinion and your expertise. Uh, you've really been a help for us out here in the heartland to understand all that's going on, and we really appreciate it. Well, Tom, always happy to be here. Perhaps uh, we can talk, uh, foreshadowing for our listeners, perhaps you and I can talk again uh, before the holidays, which is going to be a critical time, I think, uh, on the horizon. I would love to do that. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, about updates in the fight against COVID-19. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. 
Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is always available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of our podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. Again, that's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 